Welcome to episode 3 of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Huda Teob, and in this episode we ask what personal and political histories emerge via infrastructures of mobility. We hear from Mena Agha of the bonds of kinship that not only survive the crossing of fast territories, but reject borders, ruptures and distances. Growing up we thought that Sudan was so close just by the ease in which Habuba decided to just go there and visit her family. We travel with Fiston Mwanza Mujila on trains that have lost all sense of time. Gare du Nord, vendredi vers les 7, 9 heures du soir. We follow in the footsteps of Hedley Twidel, a writer traversing South Africa's longest highway on foot. Major highways are not thought about much. They are pieces of infrastructure that, if working as intended, efface themselves, receding from view in the mirror. And ponder with Kukwa Manful on the absences in architectural histories of the African continent. I did have a kind of slow realization that the reason why certain architecture is called architecture and why traditional or other forms in Africa are called buildings or dwellings was because of who's making the rules and who's doing the writing. The first voice you will hear from is that of the Egyptian Nubian architect and researcher Mina Agha. She shares a story of crossing between Egypt and Sudan told by Habuba. Nubians have lived on the banks of the River Nile for millennia. The lands of Nubia, or Land of Gold, have been divided and partitioned multiple times. In 1899 by the British, in 1956 with Egyptian independence. The second division split the village of Adendan between post-colonial Egypt and British Sudan. In the 1960s, the building of the Aswan High Dam under Nasser's rule submerged the entirety of Nubian territory on the Egyptian side and parts of the Sudanese lands too. In the story of Habuba, Mena points to the bonds of kinship that have survived these multiple displacements and the labours that have made this possible. So this is a story of a border that happened and different kinds of borders and spatial borderings that happened to follow uh, to Nubian land and Nubian spatial realities that are mitigated and dealt with within the Nubian culture in a very specific way. And I represent that in um, the story of, I will call her Haboba. And if you're an Egyptian Nubian, Haboba is going to be your great-grandmother. And if you're Sudanese, the word Habuba means simply a grandmother. And this just is a reflection of how the language moved in here and then how Nubians then use different words for grandmother and great-grandmother and for the Sudanese uh, signifier. The story itself, the story that I'm going to tell, is the repeated recurrent encounters of this generation of Nubian women. The, the story is inspired by several women, but in in particular, when I say it in my head, I see Habboba Sikina, my great-grandmother, who died when I was, I think, 10 or 12 years old. Uh, so I see her when I, I tell the story, but this is not just one person who did it. This was an entire generation that refused to cut ties. So put in mind that the story relates to a lot of Nubian women in this generation, but as I tell it, I am thinking of my own great-grandmother, my Habuba Sakina. 
So Haboba was one of those generations who were born in the beginning of the 20th century. She was not there to witness the 1899 border that was drawn, charted between Egypt and Sudan that lied just in the middle of the village of Adinden, uh, dividing it between Egypt and Sudan. One brother became an Egypt and his brother became a Sudanese citizen. Well, of course, this kind of border was um, a common practice by the British colonizer at that time. And was not activated until uh, later in the 50s when Egypt became a post-colonial state. But still, to Nubians, this is an imaginary line that did not interrupt their daily life. So Adindan was the um, adjacent village to her village of Kostul to the north. That's the village where I come from. And her village was just to the north of Adindan where the line came in. But still, she was all her life used to go to Edendan and take a boat because that's where the port uh, was and take a boat to Halfa to visit her friends and visit her family. And, and uh, she had a son then later also who married and lived in what became Sudan. She uh, would go there almost weekly. She would leave her house in Gostul, walk to uh, Adindan, uh, take a boat, the boat will spend three hours in the Nile, and then she's in Halfa and she's there. Then came the high dam, and uh, with the high dam, the entirety of Nubian land within the Egyptian border had to be submerged under the dam's reservoir. Lake Nasser in the Egyptian documents Lake Nubia on the Sudanese side, well, Nubians prefer to call it Lake Nubia. And um, Nasser is such a peculiar figure when with Nubian displacement. He has a highly Afrophile and anti-racist rhetoric, while the displacement of Nubians was extremely racist in its process, even though in his rhetoric to Nubians, he was using brothers and sisters to a peoplehood that was slaved by the rest of Egypt before Nasser. Uh, so that's why the conflicting relationships between Nubians who see this dark-skinned man who equalized everybody, but then came the displacement and Nubians asked to be displaced near their um, brothers, near their families in the Sudanese Nubians, he refused or did not take that into consideration and pushed all the Nubians to the north. And you have all these ruptures in the heart of Africa. So this, there's 400 kilometers of emptiness within the heart of the river flow that are empty of people because of the high dam and because of this kind of intervention. So you have, you have all these contradictions in Abdel Nasser's project between the Afrophile anti-racist and then nationalist universalist who needs everybody within his country to be governable and reachable and controllable. So it becomes this kind of uh, conflict. And um, now Habuba is displaced. That would happen in the 60s. She then had children and grandchildren. And she's now being displaced with them all the way to what the state called New Nubia and what Nubians called the Tahgir, place of displacement. She moves to New Coastal, or the settlement of Coastal, instead of her old village of Coastal, and as a state-built uh, housing project to house all Nubians um, affected by the high dam at the time. However, that is uh, around 350 kilometers away from her old village. That means 
she is now 350 kilometers from the place from which she took the boat to go to Halfa. And the other sad part is that Halfa also was displaced into New Halfa, which is 1600 kilometers away from New Coastal. So people who had three hours, 70 kilometers between them are now around 1700 kilometers away from each other. What she did is she still continued with her routine. She still prepared her luggage and moved to go to Halfa. Uh, and then th that would mean either Khartoum or Halfa because Herkin that lived in Halfa moved to the city of Khartoum instead of going to the new Halfa or the displacement villages of Halfa. So she now wants to go to Khartoum. What happens is that she wakes up in the morning, takes her luggage, takes a car from her new settlement uh, that barely has any cars in it. At that time, the record says that there were two people with cars in the entire uh, area. So the car will drive around 30 kilometers to take her to a port in Aswan. And then she's going to take a boat. That boat is going to cross the Lake Nubia over the submerged Nubian land. She would be on that boat for two days until she reaches the port in the old Halfa, and there she's going to take a train that's going to take two days to reach Khartoum, and also an extra day if she needs to go to Halfa in, in Tahir. So now that trip that was three hours extended to four days of labor. And here is the interesting part. Uh, her grandchildren, who are now women with their own grandchildren, say Growing up, we thought that Sudan was so close uh, just by the ease in which she decided to just go there and visit her family, to go there and, and see her relatives. And she, at that time, uh, just woke up and spontaneously would say, oh, can we find a car? I need to go see my son today. And she would go there and she would do it so frequently every two weeks or so, uh, if you count in the time of travel, which sometimes took longer because the train from the Halfa Valley to uh, Khartoum was a really tiresome train that sometimes stopped in the way. It would have mechanical issues. Uh, the trip would be very hard. Sometimes it would stay on the road for a week until she reaches that end destination of hers. And it was also very tiring because it was so dusty. So that people used to pack brooms with them on the train. So she would take a broom with her on the train to clean up her space until she reaches there uh, to see her son. And even though I look at this now with my eye as a lazy millennial uh, living in this world, and I see this as so tiresome, I see it also as a rejection by Haboba to accept the new borders and ruptures and distances. And also I see it as her rejection of a, a way of seeing the world in which kinship, relationships, active peopling is not the constitutive power that decides spatial relations. So even though it was so much labor to reach that area, she kept doing it from the 60s all the way until the early 80s. After that, she became too old and too sick. She died in the early 90s 
in her late 80s. So by the mid 80s, she was a very old woman to take that very taxing trip. However, her kids continued that trip. It's considered a duty of Nubians to uh, maintain these ties with their cousins in Sudan. And it so is the same with our, our Sudanese cousins. And now with the with new movement, with new interventions and new projects like the dry ports in Aswan, the dry ports in Kostol and Ishkit that were initiated, it became easier that buses would move freely between Egypt and Sudan. It still is a long trip, but some link has been reestablished. Uh, but to Nubians, this link was never severed because to them, the way the world should be constituted is by kinship and is by active relationships and by blood and family ties. And this would be the end of my story, but maybe I can add something here uh, that I also see that as her rejection or her trying to sustain her position as a Nubian woman ahead of her family. She needs to preside upon all her family, her son in the displacement village in Egypt and the other son in the displacement village in Sudan. She can't really sit somewhere and not have an, uh, a very clear overview of all her children and all their livelihoods and all her grandchildren. So she was somehow operating in in a way to govern her, her life and not give up or not um, seek her position as that matriarch of that family, even though the family now is 1,600 or 1,700 kilometers away from each other. Spatial justice is an overarching theme in Mena Aga's work. This, she explained, is not a choice born of luxury. As a third-generation Nubian woman displaced by the Egyptian state as part of the Aswan Haidam project in the 1960s. The narrator of Fiston Mwanza Mujila's novel, Tram 83, reminds us, Patience, friend, you know full well our trains have lost all sense of time. In this reading, we arrive at an unbuilt train station in a fictional mining town known only as the city-state. Here we are told that according to the fickle but ever-recurring legend, the seeds of all resistance movements, all wars of liberation, sprouted at the station between two locomotives. Here we are then, at a northern station, on Friday around 7 or 9 in the evening. Au commencement de la pierre, et la pierre provoqua la possession, et la possession la ruée, Et dans la ruée débarquèrent des hommes aux multiples visages qui construisirent dans le roc des chemins de fer, fabriquèrent une vie de vin de palme, inventèrent un système entre mines et marchandises. Gare du Nord, vendredi vers les 7-9 heures du soir. Patience, mon ami. Toi-même, tu sais que nos trains n'ont plus la notion du temps. La gare du Nord se dévergondait. Elle se résumait à une construction métallique inachevée, démolie par des obus, des rails et des locomotives qui ramenaient à la mémoire la ligne de chemin de fer construite par Stanley. Des champs de manioc, des hôtels à bas prix, des gargotes, des bordels, des églises au réveil, de boulangerie et de bruits orchestrés par des hommes, toutes générations et nationalités confondues. 
C'était le seul endroit du globe où l'on pouvait s'épandre, déféquer, blasphémer, s'amouracher et dérober sans se soucier du moindre regard. D'ailleurs, un air de complicité y flottait en permanence. Les chacals ne mangent pas les chacals, ils sautent sur les dindons et les perdrix et le dévorent. La légende, qui nous trompe souvent, ressassait que tout le projet de maquis et de guerre de libération avait germé à la gare entre deux locomotives. La même légende, comme si cela ne suffisait pas, prétendait que la construction du chemin de fer avait fait de nombreux morts imputés aux maladies tropicales, aux bavures techniques, aux mauvaises conditions de travail imposées par l'administration coloniale. Bref, on connaît le scénario. Gare du Nord Vendredi, vers les 7-9 heures. Il était là depuis bientôt trois heures, se heurtant au passant en entendant l'arrivée du train. Lucien avait pris soin d'insister sur la notion de temps et sur ce train qui battait tout le record. Déraillement, retard, promiscuité. Requiem avait plus important à faire qu'à attendre cet individu qui, au fil des ans, avait perdu toute importance à ses yeux. Depuis qu'il avait tourné le dos au marxisme, Requiem traitait de communiste du dimanche et d'idéologue des bidonvilles tout ce qui le privait de sa liberté de penser et d'agir. Il devait livrer une marchandise, sa vie en dépendait. Mais le train qui venait avec ses salauds de Lucien se faisait attendre. Gare du Nord, vendredi, vers les... Monsieur voudrait une compagnie. Une fille euh, habillée comme on s'habille un vendredi soir dans une gare dont la construction métallique est inachevée s'arrêta à sa hauteur. Un instant pour jauger la marchandise, un bruit sourd, un vacarme qui signalait l'entrée de la bête. « Vous avez l'heure, citoyen ?» Il avait suffisamment analysé la gamine et l'avait même imaginé sur son grabat malgré la pénombre. Il la tira contre son corps, demanda son nom, « Appelle-moi Requiem », promena ce doigt sur les mamelles de la jeune créature, une autre phrase, « Te cuis sur la prestance d'une bouteille de vodka » avant de disparaître dans la masse visqueuse, glouque, gluante, lugubre. Il fallait une consigne, indiquer un lieu où il pourrait causer à tête reposée. La jeune femme insistant, il soupira, s'émordit les lèvres et balbutia « Rendez-vous au tram 83 ». Ah bien, voir, ça ne servait pas à grand-chose puisqu'il devait raccompagner ce Lucien. Requiem secoua la trogne à cette idée. Et puis cette marchandise à livrer aux touristes fraîchement venus de l'Europe de l'Est. 
Entre-temps, le vacarme de Cuplet. La malédiction est que le train qui arrivait à ces heures de la nuit transportait toute la racaille qui ne pouvait pas, qu'il s'agisse d'étudiants ou d'ouvriers de mine, regagnait la bourgade par ce propre moyen. Le chemin de fer, pour des raisons jusque-là inconnues, coupait la seule université du coin en deux. Les cours de l'après-midi étaient perturbés non pas par le chahut de la machine, mais par des étudiants qui vidaient les lieux avec leurs clics et leurs claques, car rater ce train-là s'épissait dans sa petite culotte, cher intellectuel. Les quelques professeurs qui squattaient dans le faubourg de la ville-pays larguaient les amarres au même moment que leurs disciples. Ça ne s'apprend pas l'instinct de survie, ça vient de soi. Sinon, ils auraient déjà institué un cours d'instinct dans les universités. Les trains passaient sans s'arrêter, quitte pour les étudiants le plus rapide à s'agripper à la ferraille, à la guerre, comme à la guerre au caprice de ces étudiants qui se croyaient tout permis s'opposer à la bestialité des crèseurs qui partaient et revenaient par les mêmes enchants. Les premiers reprochaient aux seconds de brader leur dignité aux exploitants et négociants miniers d'origine multiple. Les seconds s'en moquaient démontrant avec leur poisse et leur corps rédit à force de radioactivité qu'on n'a pas à passer sur les bancs de l'école pour baiser et trinquer par la suite avec une bière bien fraîche. D'ailleurs, certains étudiants butinaient dans les mines pour régler leurs dettes. Requiem s'est mis à chercher l'aiguille dans la boue de foin. Les étudiants, efflanqués et dépassés par les événements en colère, brandissaient des théories à l'instar de butins de guerre. Les mineurs creuseurs ou creuseurs mineurs, ces scellants, sortaient de leurs gosiers des imprécations qu'on se retient de formuler. Chaque soir, le même opéra. Il se lorgnait, réchignait, s'invectivait et envenait même au point. Une légende avançait le chiffre de 1700 morts sans compter les asphyxiés et autres blessés graves lors des derniers affrontements. Fatigué et par les bruits et par l'alcool qu'il venait d'ingurgiter, Requiem s'appuya contre un pilier, attendant qu'il libère le terrain. Il traînassait sur les quais jusque tard dans la nuit, les étudiants avec leurs grèves, les mineurs creuseurs avec leurs gueules puant la dernière rouille. Je suis une femme libre, mais je cherche encore l'homme de ma vie. Il pensait déjà au sein siliconé de la fille qui l'attendait au tram 83. 
Après ces longues années de séparation, comment larguer Lucien et disparaître avec la gonzesse dans les méandres de la nuit Les crèzeurs des mines et les étudiants continuaient à se tester. Ils empruntaient le même itinéraire pour nulle part à l'apothéose des menaces qu'ils proféraient. Requiem s'est senti, Requiem senti comme une présence. Il leva le sourcil, Lucien en chair et en squelette. Requiem s'avança. Il s'est rendu compte que son ami avait perdu tout son poids, qu'une époque passait, qu'une civilisation trépignait. Lucien était tout de noir vêtu, jouant de l'harmonie d'une écharpe rouge et des paperasses plein les aisselles. Un sac en simile cuir usé jusqu'à la corde en bandoulière. Les cheveux ébouriffés. Le visage froissé. La moustache intacte. Le regard froid. La voix rouillée. Ils s'étreignirent sans trop d'enthousiasme. Les salauds. Ne me dis pas qu'ils t'ont torpillé la cervelle. Et toi, quelle nouvelle Et Jacqueline, une longue histoire. Comment tu t'en es tiré Je t'expliquerai. Les salauds, les salauds, ils... Tu m'amènes Oui, répondit Requiem, froidement sûrement hanté par la fille habillée comme on s'habille un vendredi soir dans une gare dont la construction métallique est inachevée, où les rebelles dissidents à mal de sexe, les étudiants et les crèzeurs empruntent le même itinéraire. Je suis une fille à fleur de peau. De grosses larmes descendirent sur le visage de l'homme qui avait débarqué avec le train dans cette gare dans la construction métallique. Ils traversèrent en silence le hall et les autres morceaux de la gare investis par quelques filles mères en lasse. Des professeurs bazardants des noms de cours des intellectuels puant le poisson salé, des artistes cubains qui exécutaient salsa, flamenco, merengue à l'occasion de rien. Fiston grew up in the mining province of Katanga, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The decision to set Tram 83 in an unnamed mining town was made deliberately in order to not limit the neo-colonial and extractive conditions depicted in the novel to one country. Tram 83 could be a South African, Congolese or Angolan novel. Literature, Fiston argues, must remain a place of possibility, dream, extravagance, freedom and excess. Hedley Twydell departs from social and cultural historian Joe Moran's observation 
that the road is almost a separate country, one that remains underexplored, not because it is remote and inaccessible, but because it is ubiquitous and familiar. He sets out on foot following the trail of the N2, South Africa's longest highway, to conduct an anthropology not of the distant and exotic, but rather of the near, the mundane, the everyday. N2. Curled up in that tiny alphanumeric are thousands of kilometers, hundreds of service stations, millions of tons of concrete. N2 can mean a London bus route, an intelligence officer in the US Navy, an anti-nuclear song by the Japanese indie group Asian Kung Fu Generation. But for my purposes, it is the longest highway in South Africa, which starts at an unfinished flyover near the docks in Cape Town, follows the eastern seaboard of the country, roughly, for over 2,000 kilometers, then bends north and west below Swaziland to end at the town of Ermelo in the province of Mpumalanga. Major highways are not thought about much. They are pieces of infrastructure that, if working as intended, efface themselves, receding from view in the mirror. In his hidden history of the UK's motorway system, Joe Moran suggests that this bland corporate terrain of tarmac underpasses and thermoplastic road markings is the most commonly viewed and least contemplated landscape in Britain. The road is almost a separate country, one that remains underexplored, not because it is remote and inaccessible, but because it is so ubiquitous and familiar. Perhaps because of the late age at which I, after many failed attempts, got my driver's license, piloting vehicles along strips of tarmac has never quite lost its strangeness for me, and the psychology and social behaviours associated with driving are, I believe, complex and neglected domains. With the passing of the era of cheap oil, future humanity will look back on our cities with wonder, disbelief and disgust at how totally urban spaces were shaped around the velocities and demands of the private vehicle. So, an important strategy for environmental writing in the 21st century might be to estrange the practice of everyday life, to conduct an anthropology not of the distant and exotic, but rather of the near, the mundane, the everyday. On the side of major South African roads, there are electronic gantries known as variable message signboards, or VMSs. In Cape Town, these are programmed from a high-tech traffic control center built ahead of the 2010 FIFA World Cup. Part of an initiative to create a smart city, warn motorists about snarl-ups, and generally convey the sense that roads, rather than being zones of unaccountable rage, homicidal, antisociality, fantasy, delusion, and constant danger, are rational and manageable spaces. The new generation of highway signage is electronic. The large programmable VMSs convey fairly standard and predictable messages maintain a safe following distance. They often have a two-part carrot and stick structure. Enjoy your festive season hangs in the air for a second, only to be tempered with, but don't drink and drive. Sometimes the VMSs malfunction and display a line of X's, or else a dot that goes up, then down. But there is one that seems less purely informational, 
and more like a pithy text for thought and meditation. It goes, remember, every driver has also been a pedestrian, and then slow down when you see pedestrians. This is doing more work than the average VMS because it is trying to inculcate a kind of empathy, asking us to do the imaginative work of inhabiting each other's lives. Yet the first statement is surely not reversible. There are millions of pedestrians who never have been and never will be drivers. And is it even true? Have all those who pilot around large insulating vehicles ever experienced what it means to walk along or across a busy road? Have they ever crossed a national highway on foot? Trying to understand the vexed relation between motor traffic and foot traffic in this country and between human bodies and highways more generally, I set out with a friend to walk from Cape Town's city centre to its airport on the hard shoulder of the N2. As the highway approaches Hospital Bend, a complex and dangerous zone of merging roads, twisty on-ramps, weaving traffic, there is a traffic island where you often see bedding wedged into the infrastructural cracks and crevices. Dehumanization zone appeared there for a day or two, the work of a stencil collective, who also hacked the city of Cape Town's slogan, the city works for you, and printed this city works for a few, where the Joe Slovo stroke N2 gateway human settlements housing project meets the road reserve with one letter per standalone concrete toilet facing the traffic. The embankment signs and furniture of the road reserve are an enormous canvas for street artists and stencil collectives engaged in an ongoing game of cat and mouse with city workers wielding power hoses and grey municipal paint. The N2 is known for a more socially conscious graffiti than the N1, where you're more likely to see individual tags and boasts. We run across to the island, having to judge things very carefully. This is foolhardy, I realize, not to mention illegal. Once on the island, we struggle to get off. Traffic volume only needs to rise by a few increments and you will truly be stuck until the tide goes down. Something we realize very quickly about running across national highways. Your legs and nerves and muscles need to fire immediately and decisively. There is no room for error. In some of the literature around pedestrian casualties in South Africa, there is speculation that those who have never been drivers before may struggle to conceptualize the speeds at which cars travel, the linear commitments of the fast-moving vehicle, its inhuman inertia. The pedestrian-driver interface, that is, may involve a quite technical inability to think one's way into another body. This is compounded by the more general problem of empathy that driving calls forth, one with which you, the you who are lucky to drive a private vehicle, can probably identify. It is crystallized in its purest form in that moment when you are cursing a pedestrian, perhaps one trying to cross a South African road within the two or three seconds permitted by the green man, when you know that you have been in exactly the same position, perhaps the day before or just an hour ago. So if you can't even empathize with an earlier version of yourself, what hope for imagining yourself into someone else? Still stuck on the island, crouched on your marks, getting set, waiting to go, you're amazed that your soft pudding of a body has made it even this far in the world. 
Given all the hard surfaces everywhere, the field of deadly forces you navigate through each day, the fast-moving torrents of steel and rubber just meters away, and here is your tiny, fragile, human infrastructure perched on the edge of the N2. Lower down we run across to the plaque commemorating Settler's Way. This N2 nickname tries to imbue an artifact of mid-20th century modernity with some retrofitted heritage. This is the 1960s highway as a vector of colonial history, following the ox wagon tracks across the flats, striking out toward the interior. But we can extend this history further, since these wagon tracks followed much older routes of indigenous peoples, who in turn followed herds of game through the landscape. Virtually the only surviving fragments of the Khoiansan language families in the Western Cape are found in the names of mountain passes, the Khanto, Trado, Kariedo, the way of the Elant, of the woman, of the Kariya trees. They thread their way through the mountains to the east, ranges now outlined through a brown petrochemical haze. The narrow range of geological options through the Cape Fold Belt funnels together the deep past and the ultra-modern. The concrete stilts and crash barriers touch on ancient ways of moving through the country. Headley's reading is an extract from a longer text titled 13 Ways of Looking at the N2, which appears in his essay collection, Firepool, Experiences in an Abnormal World. Kukwa Manfil is an architect from Ghana with interests in African architectural history. Her previous research explored the positioning of Ghanaian architects in the modernist movement and the concept of Asante architectural identity. She reflects here on how and where her interests in archival research started. I trained as an architect in Ghana. I studied at the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, first for a BSc in architecture and then for a Master of Architecture. And currently also living and working in Oxford and in London in the UK. So I was also really interested in and curious about more than architecture and more than the architecture we were presented with and taught and told was architecture. So about, of course, about the buildings and the spaces and who made them and who used them, but also like those that did not use them or were not allowed to use them or did not want to use them. I've always loved history. So I was always curious about histories of African architecture I was never really satisfied with the kind of histories we were taught, which made it seem like there were the pyramids in Egypt and those great Zimbabwe. And if we're lucky, we'll get um, Gedi or something in Kenya. But then, then there was like dwellings and indigenous buildings. So I was curious about more than that because I was not really satisfied with that. There's an interesting origin story of the Asante ethnic group in Ghana, where the sort of creation myth is that they came out of a hole in the ground. And I think nine or 12 people were the first to come out. And each of these people represents one of the great clans of the ethnic group. And one of these clans is the Adansi clan, which is literally the building clan. So to them, God gave the power to build. 
So those sorts of things made me, why would a foundational story of an ethnic group have something about building and architecture? And then you would not tell me that, oh, these people never really did buildings or they just had like shanties and shacks and stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with shanties and shacks, but it just didn't gel for me. So I, I think really that's how I I enter academia as another avenue through which I can investigate these things to explore and analyze beyond designing and constructing and images, but also like histories and stories. I struggle to pinpoint an exact sort of aha moment. So more like multiple, not as as grand <laughs> moments of realization. Um, so first going back to being an undergrad, so in encountering these histories and theory that we were taught, I did have um, a kind of slow realization or dawning that the reason why certain architecture is called architecture and why traditional or other forms of autochthonous building in, in, in Africa are called buildings or dwellings was because of who's making the rules and who's doing the writing. And that's even some of my teachers have been or had been taught these things and follow these rules, which is why they repeated these ideas to us, like beyond the pyramids and this, um, there's no architecture in Africa really to speak of before and outside of white people in Africa. So my searching and yearning for archival sources was really from this drive to prove or disprove this received knowledge. So my my first searching for archival sources are really not official sources at all. So I would go in as as, as an architecture student, I would go to the palace museums or to people, because I, I do think there's people who are archives, like you can think of griots who who record the stories of the entire community, the town in their heads. So this is my first trying to access recorded knowledge from before. It's talking to people, going to, going to palace museums and looking at any building I could find that was evidence of this past. So somewhere along this, I can't remember when again, but I have another kind of moment again of, of how I, I approach and use and think of, of using archives is um, encountering um, this quotes by Toni Morrison. The very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you explaining your reason for being. Someone says you have no language, so you spend 20 years proving that you do. And somebody says you have no art, you dredge that up. Someone says you have no kingdom, so you dredge that up. And none of that is necessary. So it's from this speech that she gives in 1975 at Portland State University. And she's talking about a lot of things. But in this moment, she's talking about who and what this kind of work is for. She's saying that if you're using this sort of historical work, this research to prove that you're human, that you also have buildings, you also have architecture. It's pointless. It's not necessary. So it's about who it's for. And for me, it's it's for me. It's for mine. It's for 
people like the architecture student that I was to see what was and what that means for us now. Next week, we return to our conversation with Kukwa Manful to hear more of her current research, which looks into nation building through the architecture of West African secondary schools from 1945 to 1965. Thank you for listening. The next episode asks what remains of the political and cultural ideas that imagined the African continent as the utopia of a borderless world. We will feature the voices of Kukwa Manful, a Ghanaian historian and architect, Sarah Salem, an Egyptian sociologist, and Emmanuel Iduma, a Nigerian writer, editor, publisher, and art critic. The Archive of Forgetfulness project is co-curated by Huda Teob and Bongani Kona and is made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates.